It's great to be back in the United States of America, and I look forward to our celebration tonight as a church family. We'll be going to a very special place you'll hear about in just a minute. I invite you to come and join us. There'll be some hamburgers. The deacons are responsible for the food tonight, and uh, so we're going to have a great time of celebration. We're going to be in a different place, so I'm not going to ruin the, the excitement, but uh, somebody's going to come and tell us where to go later on tonight. So I invite you to come and be a part of the hamburgers and the festivities and celebration. It's always a great time to get together and... Um, and celebrate fellowship and just commemorate the 4th of July. I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm glad to be back. Uh, I told Mike a while ago, I've, I've been without sleep now for about seven days. I've been in a different time zone, speaking a different language. So if I fall asleep in my own sermon, then you'll understand why. I have seen many fall asleep during my sermon, but I have never yet fallen asleep on my own sermon. So this may be the first day. I'm just not sure where I'm going to lean when I go to sleep. So uh, anyway, both eyes are open and my feet are on the floor and uh, I have a bum knee that I hurt while I was there and so it got me out of some of the hard work. If you've looked at some of the Facebook stuff, I'm not in all the pictures because I have a good excuse. I have a knee that's inflamed for some reason and so uh, I'm going to see about that this next week. My mother is joining us today via the telecast. She's in the hospital, so hi mom and dad and uh, thank you for praying for her. Uh, this last week she had a hip replacement. I spent three days uh, with my mom and refereeing for my parents and, and my family for three days and then came back Friday late and Saturday got on the plane and went to Canada. So it's been a pretty wild uh, week and a half in uh, trying to get all that, uh, all that together. So uh, today we're going to begin a new series entitled The, F the, the, the Timeless Truths for Today's Family. Timeless Truths for today's family. And the passage that uh, Pastor Ryan read from us while ago, for us while ago, was a passage in which Jesus was being asked by some religious scholars what he thought about divorce. In essence, what they were thinking and what they were asking is, Jesus, what is your, what is your comment? What is your view on marriage itself? And he began by describing his view, which is God's view on marriage and the relationship between a husband and wife or mother and father by taking them back to the timeless truths that are found in what we call the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus was taking them back to a, an earlier passage, way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where God founded the family. And so it would be unfair for us in these modern times that we live in to describe the family that God has founded and which he forms even today, not to be sort of in the same perspective as Jesus, not to go back to those, to those same concepts, not to go back to those same principles and those same principles, uh, principles and procedures that, that God defined in the Old Testament. We would not do justice if we were just to look at the New Testament alone. So we're going to look at the New Testament, the Old Testament. We're going to define what God had to say in the Old and the New, but for today, and more than likely for the next couple of Sundays, because I haven't really had time to iron out all that we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about the family in the weeks to come. I didn't understand, didn't realize what the Supreme Court was going to rule, although if you've seen some of the things that I've put out, I wasn't... I wasn't appalled and I wasn't uh, surprised by the ruling of the Supreme Court. What I said in one of my uh, very small remarks was simply this, why are we surprised by a Supreme Court that legalized murder when they voted to abort children 
who are now ruling in favor of same-sex marriage. I, I don't know why we're, we're appalled by that or surprised by that. I think there were many of us that were hopeful that they would remain you know, conservative in their ruling and would not rule in favor of same-sex marriage, but they did nonetheless, and I wasn't surprised by that. I somewhat anticipated that, and in anticipation of that, I wanted to talk about the family and what God has to say in regard to the framework and the fabric of the family according to what the Word of God, the Bible, has to say, because after all, that is the foundation, that is the guide, that is a preface by which we build our families on today. It's the Bible. And the same God that defined the, bi- uh, the family then in his Bible is the same God today. He has not changed. His standards have not changed. And his foundation has not changed. It is man that has changed. And so we're going to look at the fall of the first family. And in case you've been under a rock or maybe, you know, in the last week or so, you've been in a foreign country like I have in Canada, all of us are aware of the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage. And uh, that, that was appalling to us. But what might have been just as appalling for the very first time in many of us as we have seen pictures of the White House We saw the White House depicted in an array of rainbow colors in celebration of the Supreme Court's ruling. Did you see that? I don't know how appalled you were by that, but for the first time when I viewed the White House, where the first family of the United States of America lives, I saw the fall of the first family of the United States of America. I was appalled by that. For a man who just a couple of years earlier said he was not in favor of of a Supreme Court ruling that ruled the way that it did, or a change in the Constitution is now celebrating same-sex marriage when he promised he would not for those who elected him. Now, the fall of the first family of the United States of America, while appalling and while tragic, is not new to the Bible. There is a first family described in Genesis chapter 3 that also fell. It was indeed the first family to fall to sin. And I want to take a look at Genesis chapter 3, and I want us to go to the first family that fell in Genesis chapter 3, described by Adam and Eve, for they were a family, and how they fell. And I want us to learn some lessons in their failure. Because if we are not careful, not only will the families today who have fallen fall, but we are subject to falling as well. And I'm convinced there are no families that are immune from falling into sin. And so I want us to learn some lessons in regard to the fall of the first family that would help us and will enable us, will empower us not to fall as they fell in a culture that I'm convinced is an upside-down culture and that has fallen into sin. So let's look at the fall of the first family. First of all, we learn from the lesson of the family's first fall that conflict is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. In other words, conflict is going to come. It's inevitable. You can't isolate or insulate yourself from it. It's going to happen. Now imagine Adam and Eve being created by God, both male and female, and then a garden created for them, and they were placed in that garden, and that garden was a perfect 
environment. It had the perfect culture. It was a perfect society. It was flawless. It was without sin. And all of Adam and Eve's needs were provided by the Father, by God himself. It was a perfect environment. And there are some of us today who are appalled by the Supreme Court's ruling because we feel like that we are slowly losing our perfect environment called the United States of America. But let me remind you, this has never been a perfect culture. We've never enjoyed a perfect environment. There has been no such perfect culture environment since the fall in Genesis 3. We have been living in a delusional state, believing that we as the church have somehow insulated and isolated ourselves from the inevitable conflict with the enemy, when in fact the enemy has been conflictual with us from Genesis 3 till today. He's not ceased, he's not stopped. And so we, 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 we somehow think that we've, we've lost something that we once had, while there was a gain, I think, for the other side, and a loss for our side, we've never lived in an environment where conflict wasn't inevitable since the fall in Genesis 3. Let's look at the conflict that was inevitable, even in a perfect environment called the Garden of Eden. Notice the text, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field than the Lord God had made. Conflict is inevitable because there's an adversary. There's an adversary. And he is described in the form of a serpent. And this serpent is none other than Satan himself. Now, we're not going to go into all the historical and definitions of what all that seems to mean because I don't have time. I wish we could dissect this chapter verse by verse and take a lengthy study through it. But for time's sake this morning, Satan possessed this animal's physical appearance called, I believe, a serpent. And it was the serpent then that Satan used to tempt Eve and to tempt Adam. And it was Satan who was behind the temptation in the form of a serpent. And it is Satan who is the adversary here. And Satan is described as being someone who is crafty, someone who is cunning, someone who is sly, someone who slithers and meanders and works their way into your life unexpectedly before you even notice that they are there. And Eve certainly is taking, taken off guard. She is totally oblivious to the fact that this is Satan in representation. This is Satan himself. And so Satan now is the adversary who invades this perfect environment that Adam and Eve have been enjoying, enjoying called the Garden of Eden for the very first time. He is declaring war upon God's creation, and he has been doing that ever since Genesis 3. So we, we shouldn't be surprised by that. And so he's been declaring war now on the earth against man and against the creation of God. He is the adversary who invaded the garden, the perfect place. And he's still invading today. 
Notice then in the rest of verse 1, the adversary becomes extremely aggressive. After being introduced as Satan himself, the adversary, notice his aggression in the second part of verse 1. He said to the woman, she didn't address him first. He addresses her first. He comes, now granted, she's probably too close to the tree to begin with. Okay? Why is she lurking around the forbidden tree? Why is she close enough to hear what Satan is about to tempt her with? I don't understand it. I don't know it. We're not given the reasons for it. But whatever reason, she was probably in this beautiful orchard picking fruit for dinner that night or maybe for lunch that day. And all of a sudden, she was close enough to this forbidden tree when Satan then, he is the adversary, aggressively speaks to her. And he, notice what he asks, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, you should not eat of any tree in the garden. Did he actually say that? Satan has been asking that from, from the get-go. Did God really say that? Really? Are you sure? He's casting doubt on the word of God. Are you sure he really intended for you to hear that and to apply that and to live that? Are you really sure? Do I need to connect the dots for you today? Do I? Isn't that what's being said today in our culture? Did God really say that? Really? No, he didn't say that. But Satan comes to create some confusion, to cause some doubt. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? No. God said you could eat of any tree in the garden but the one. You can pluck fruit from any of these trees, but not this one single solitary tree. Do not pick its fruit and do not consume it. Don't eat it. So God didn't say that, did he? Satan knows what God has said. Let me say that again. Satan knows what the word of God says. And he comes and he casts doubt on his word. And he's continually, constantly doing that even today. Are you sure that's what God said? He knows what God said, and yet he's twisting it, he's distorting it, he's confusing it. He's casting doubt on the word of God, trying to create confusion. Basically what he's asking Eve is, are you sure God is not trying to limit your freedom is God trying to constrain you somehow? I mean, he's allowing you to eat from any tree in this garden but this one. That's not fair. Why not? Why would he say that? Why would he let you eat from all of these but say no to this one? Did God actually say what he said? Casting doubt, notice how she is confused by what God says. And I think there are many today who are confused by the word of God. And they will defend to the hilt their position in their confusion, believing that God has said this when in fact he has not said it. And while they may get partially right what God said, they distort some of what God said in order to justify their position. Notice what Eve says in verse two. The woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Yeah, we can eat from the trees and the fruit of the garden, but 
However, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, she's got it right. She understands that God said you can eat from all of the trees in the garden in this wonderful, wonderful orchard, but there's one that you cannot eat of. But notice she adds something here. She says, in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Did God say that? No. He simply said, don't eat it. Now, it stems the reason that if you touch it, you're going to be tempted to eat it. So stay away from it. Don't touch it. Don't pluck it. Therefore, you won't be tempted to eat it. But she's confused about what God has said. We're not really sure why Eva's confused as to what God said. We just know that she's confused. She adds to what God said. And there are many today who are confused about what God said, and they're adding to God's word. They're adding to it, and God never said what they said that he is saying. And so here we said, at least you die. She got that part right. So yes, she's confused. Notice verse 4, the adversary who is aggressive now attacks the word of God when he says, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. In other words, he's saying to Eve, God is a liar. The father of lies is calling God a liar. God never lies. Satan is described as the father of lies, and anything that he says or suggests is a lie. It's not truth. It may have partial truth in it, but it is also and does often contain untruth in order to twist and distort the truth of God to get us to compromise and do what he wants us to do. He lied. And Satan is still on the attack, and he's attacking the word of God today by saying and suggesting, God didn't really say that. God didn't really mean that. And notice in the attack comes the appeal to Eve. Here's the appeal, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Partial truth tucked in there, untruth. Notice he says, God knows, and he does know, that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened. God knows that. Yes, he does. And you will be like God. Yes, they will. They will know the difference between good and evil. Right now, they know good. They know nothing about evil. And so therefore, they're not quite exactly in the same reference or the same wisdom or the same understanding. They were created in God's image, but there's an aspect that God is trying to protect them from knowing evil. And so in some respect, God does know when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, meaning you will know the difference between good and evil. Right now, they know nothing about evil. They know nothing about sin. And he says, knowing good and evil. In other words, he is appealing to her personal freedoms. Why let God constrain you in this box with all these don'ts? A good God would never put boundaries on what you can enjoy out of this life. There are no constraints. There are no rules. There are no out of bounds. Imagine playing a basketball game which is one of my favorite games, without boundaries, without rules. I I love football, and it's coming up. Imagine a football game without rules, without boundaries. 
It's chaos. God created us with these boundaries. And he gave us the do's, but he also gave us the don'ts. And there's reason for those because he's trying to protect and preserve us and to keep us from the evil, the sin that would invade our lives and cause havoc in the lifestyles that we were intended to live and to enjoy. Conflict is inevitable. I don't care where you live or what what castle you try to build around yourself and your family and you build a moat and you draw up the moat and you try to shield and protect your family from, from the enemy that's out there. You can, you can go to private schools. You can go to a, a great church. You can, you can, go to a, you can have a, a Christian business and you can try to insulate and isolate yourself from all of these, these inevitables out here and, and, and try to say, you know, we're not, we're not going to be in conflict with the enemy. You, you can't. For almost eight years, I've tried to avoid conflict with the gay and lesbian community. It's inevitable. And some of you have wished that I took a stronger stand. But just a few weeks ago when we denied a group uh, of gays and lesbians who sing to sing at a funeral for a man who didn't agree with that lifestyle, now there's attacks on our church again and upon me personally. Conflict is inevitable. Especially with a Supreme Court ruling, you're not going to be able to escape personal attacks. It's coming. You may eventually have to take a stand for your position or lose your job. You may lose friendships. You may lose income. The battle is getting, uh, I want to say, not stronger. The battle is, is heating up. The conflict is rising. And I believe that soon there will be greater persecution against the evangelical, Bible-believing church in America more than at any other time in the history of the United States. We are in danger of losing our 501c3. At some point, I could, they, they're saying, some saying it's not going to happen and some are saying that it will happen. If I don't perform same-sex marriages, I could go to jail. Now, some of you are saying, how is that possible? We live in the USA. Let me ask you something. 30 years ago, did you believe we would be where we are today? Come on. Did you believe that? We never imagined. When, when we voted for one of the most conservative presidents we've ever had. His name is Ronald Reagan. Remember? We would have never imagined just two decades later we would be where we are today. And yet here we are. And I wonder where we're going to be 20 more years from now. Conflict is inevitable. Now, not only is conflict inevitable, but compromise is transferable. 
Notice the text in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice that Eve saw the fruit. It is an aspect of lingering for quite some time examining the fruit. She not only looked, but she continued to look, to continue to examine. And as she continued to look, we notice in the scriptures that she became Deceived because in her look, she began to see that which was harmful, that which was evil, as something that was good. The longer you look and examine sin, the less it becomes good and become um, evil and becomes good. She looked at it way too long, and what was evil became good. She was deceived. Notice the Bible says it brought delight to her eyes. It brought delight to her eyes. There was a, there, there was a stirring there in the heart. It appealed to a desire of the flesh. She looked at it. It was evil, and she began to see it as good, and then she began to see the delight that it would bring, the satisfaction that it would bring to her flesh and to her hunger. And notice the Bible then says she desired to be wise. She wanted to know what sin tasted like. She wanted to know what that fruit would result in her life. She saw it and she sinned. The passage says in the text, she took of its fruit and she ate it. She took and she tasted the fruit. She took it and she tasted it. She looked and she looked and she lingered and she looked and she reached out and she plucked it and she ate it. She sinned because God had said, don't eat of that tree. All the others you can eat, but not this one. And she did it anyway. But notice the passage says, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. She shared it with him. Now, in her defense, Adam was there the whole time. He was there the whole time. They were together the whole time. And up to now, Adam has been silent. The man, the husband, has been silent. And I have long said for quite some time now, for several years, why are we as the men silent in the church? Silent in our culture and silent toward what is right and what is wrong. We have abdicated our role and responsibility of speaking out. We are silent. But we sometimes as Christians become silent because unless we are silent, we enter into conflict. And so we choose silence rather than conflict. And Adam probably, while he was standing there, I don't know this for a fact, said, you know, if I speak up now, I'm going to have to confront Satan and I'm going to have to tell Eve no. And so I'm just going to remain silent. I'm convinced that silence is approval. Silence is acceptance. Silence is cowardice. Silence is complacency. Silence is tolerance. And I get it. It's easier to be silent than to enter into conflict. I've tried that. It's not going to happen. 
Now, while we choose to enter into the conflict, we do so graciously, lovingly, tenderly, kindly, without condemnation, because God did give us the gavel, but yet we, we shouldn't be silent on what is right as to both what is wrong. We should never compromise because of silence. You're going to have to take a position on this one issue. I guarantee it. And you're going to be tempted to be silent at work. You're going to be tempted to be silent in conversations you're going to gradually have with your neighbors. You're going to be tempted to be silent when you're out on the ball field. And you're going to to be tempted to be silent. And when you're silent, you know what happens? You give your approval and your affirmation. He was silent. But notice, it's different here for Adam, isn't it, than Eve? Because we only have one very small phrase in regard to Adam's sin. It simply says that she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's all it says. There was no conversation with the devil. There was no conversation between him and Eve recorded. There's there's nothing but silence. And so we see in this text that Adam's sin is pure, pure rebellion. He just is purely rebellious. And he takes what Eve has given him without any hesitation, he eats and he shares in that sin with Eve. And because he shared in that sin with Eve, now we share in his sin against God. Because one man sinned, we all now are sinners. See how that's transferred? From Eve to Adam to us. And because of the sin of one man, we now are condemned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wage of that sin is death. So we now share this transferable sin that Adam and Eve committed is now ours. Yes, true, Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. He was just purely rebellious, and he took it, and he ate it, and now we are sinners because of his sin. Compromise is transferable. Mom and Dad, if you think you can compromise and your kids aren't going to catch it, you need to wake up. Grandparents, if you think that you can compromise and your sin isn't transferable to your family, you need to realize that it is. Believer, church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, we must never compromise. For that compromise is transferable to generation, to generation, to generation, the generation. And so here we see conflict is inevitable, compromise is transferable, thirdly, conviction is indefensible. Conviction is indispensable. Notice the text, verse 7, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Then, at that very moment, upon taking and eating the fruit, both of them, then, that very split second, their eyes were opened, and they realized immediately what they had done. They have lost their innocence. Their innocence was gone. They were innocent until that time. They knew nothing about sin, but once they tasted it, then, at that very moment, their eyes were opened, and their innocence was lost, never to be regained. That's the consequence of sin. Once you commit that sin, that innocence is gone, and the consequences are sure to follow. And both their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. They didn't know they were naked until then. Why? Because they were innocent. And now all of a sudden, they recognize and realize, I don't have any clothes on. You don't have any clothes on. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They reached for cover, didn't they? <gasps> I'm naked. And so now let's make something so that we can cover our nakedness. What are they covering up? More than nakedness, isn't it? They're covering up their guilt and their shame and their sin, trying to hide it not only from each other, but hide it from God. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They ran from God. God came into the garden as he normally does to encounter this wonderful, beautiful love relationship between him and his creation, Adam and Eve. And they had walked many times in the garden, sharing, conversing, and laughing, and having a a wonderful time. And now God, knowing that they have committed this sin, now comes as he normally does to have his walk in the garden with his creation, with Adam and Eve. And now all of a sudden he comes and they hear him coming. They recognize the sound of his footsteps. We were just in a place here just last week where you could hear everything going on upstairs. When I'm down in my study on Sunday mornings and I get up at 5 o'clock to go down and study, I know when Patty's up because I can hear the sound of her footsteps. She gets up later than I do, and I normally bring her coffee when I hear her footsteps. They heard the footsteps of God. They knew it was him. There's no question in their mind God was coming. They heard in the garden, and he was coming to walk in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, they did what? They hid themselves. They hid themselves. They hid themselves. How foolish, hiding themselves from what? From the presence of God. How ridiculous. How foolish. A God who sees and knows everything, who is everywhere all the time, all of a sudden now they hear his footsteps coming and they say, let's hide from God. And when I, when I hear this, I think about the many times I played hide and go seek with my young children and you walk into a room and they're like two or three and they're trying to hide from you and you see them behind that door, but you pretend you don't see them. You know what I'm saying? Matthew, where are you? And you know where they are, but you don't want to give them up too soon because you want them to feel like they're doing a good job hiding, right? Or maybe you're not one of those people. You find them right away and cut their ego right off the bat. I don't know. Here we see that, you know, all of a sudden they're hiding themselves from the presence of God where among the trees in the garden, the very thing that God created, they ran from God for cover and they refused to draw near to God. Verse 9, and the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? Does he not know where they are? Absolutely. He knows where they are. He's seen them commit the sin. He has watched them hide and try to cover their sin. They're convicted of their sin, and all God wants from them is to come out from hiding, to expose themselves as the sinners for what they are, the rebellious, the, the ones who have defied, who have, who have been totally carnal and totally sinful. They have disobeyed God. They have violated his standards and his principles and his precepts. God, we have, we have done this wicked thing, and we are sorry. There's a conviction here. No matter how they try to hide and cover up, they're still convicted of their sin. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of people out there who try to justify their sin, but there's a conviction in here that won't stop. It won't go away. They want affirmation from the government. They want approval from the church, but they know in their heart of hearts that they're sinners because their sin convicts them. 
just as it does you and I when we sin. Try sinning and try to, try to end that. As soon as you get through the act of that sin, covering it up and pretending like it doesn't exist, if you're a true disciple, a follower of Jesus, that sin's going to haunt you because you're going to be convicted, and that conviction brings shame and guilt and remorse. And until you confess it and get right with God, it's indefensible. You can argue till you're blue in the face. Try to remove the shame and the guilt that you feel. But conviction is there. And no government, no church, no false preacher can try to justify that conviction and make it go away because you know in the heart of hearts it's there. Until you confess and repent of it and stop it, it's going to still be there. Number four, confession is non-negotiable. God's wanting them to confess. They're convicted of their sin. He's wanting confession, verse 10, and he said, I hear the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam finally steps out. (laughs) He finally comes clean. God's not going away until I finally answer. And he says, God, I, I acknowledge that I heard you. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I heard you coming. But I was afraid. He's never been afraid before. But now he's afraid. He has reason to be afraid. He's defied, he's disobeyed, he's rebelled against God, and he's done the very thing that God said is inconceivable, irreprehensible, and unacceptable to him. Because I was naked, I was exposed for my sin. I knew that if I came out, you would see that I had sinned and disobeyed you. So as a result of that, I hid myself from your presence. Notice, then God asked in verse 11, he, who told you you were naked? There's a man in, who's a former uh, chief of, uh, of uh, former fire chief in Atlanta that I met in the Southern Baptist Convention who wrote a book entitled, Who Told You You Were Naked? And uh, he had a Bible study of some men in his fire department, and he, he was handing that out, this little booklet that he had written to do Bible studies. It was about purity and, and righteousness, and there was a couple of phrases in there about homosexuality, and he handed it out. And there was a guy who happened to be standing there that wasn't a part of the the, the Bible study and asked for one, and he just innocently gave the guy one, and it was that that caused him to be fired as the fire chief of Atlanta because of that very question of that book, who told you you were a sinner or you were naked? Who told you you were naked? You didn't know that before. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree for which I commanded you not to eat? Did God not know the answer to that question? What's he doing? Hey, Adam, come clean, man. Confess. Get honest. Be humble. Go ahead. Be humble. Be honest. Be honest with me. But notice what Adam applies in this verse. In the man, verse 12, the man said, Adam said, the woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. He's applying the guilt to whom? Most of us would say Eve, and I think to some degree we would be right. It's Eve's fault. Her fault. She's the one who plucked it, and she ate it first. Then I watched, and you know what? She didn't die like you said she was going to die, so I ate it. And I heard what Satan said, and he said that she wouldn't die, and so she ate it and didn't die, and 
She appeared to be okay, and she seemed to enjoy it, so I ate it too. It was her fault. That, that's one aspect about, or one side of that coin, but the other side of that coin is Adam is blaming God. He goes, God, if you had not given me Eve, I would have never been tempted to eat that. There are some who are blaming God for their sin. After all, I was created this way. So therefore, my sin is acceptable because I've been created as such. So therefore, God, it's your fault because you created me this way. Therefore, I can't do anything but be this way. But notice then he goes to Eve, verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? What have you done? And the woman, notice she affirms her deception. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve is being honest. I was deceived. She was deceived. You read anywhere in the New Testament about the sin of Adam and Eve. Always God references that Eve was deceived, but Adam was rebellious and he sinned. Doesn't mean that she didn't sin, but her sin was a result of deception. Adam's was a sin of rebellion. Confession is non-negotiable. For whenever we defy the standard and the precepts of God, he expects us to confess. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And cleansing comes through confession. Forgiveness comes through confession. And without repentance and confession, there's no forgiveness. Lastly, let's look at the consequences that are inescapable. Sin always brings consequences. This is our last point, verse 15 through 19. We'll go through this pretty quickly, verse 14. Consequences are inescapable. While forgiveness is possible, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be cleansed, but the consequence of our choices the consequence of sin often lasts a lifetime. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all days of your life. All the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and she shall bruise your head, and you shall be bruised his heel. There's a proclamation that God gives to Satan himself. We're not going to take time to really delve into this a whole lot. I wish we did. But here we see this beautiful understanding of the consequences that Satan suffers because he has invaded the very creation of God and he has declared war on earth. And now God is saying to Satan, because you have made this choice, not just to make war with me in heaven when you were kicked out, but you made now the choice to declare war on me in my creation, and you tempted Adam and Eve, and you brought about this incredible consequence. Now you are going to suffer consequences because the very earth that you invaded, in which you made a choice to, to place war upon me, this is the very spot, this place right here, this earth, these people are the ones that I'm going to use because from the seed of this woman is going to come the Christ child who will die on a cross, who will be raised from the dead, and will give the gospel 
to a lost world and through faith in this God-man named Jesus, you will lose your reign and sin will lose its hold and man will be saved from his sin against God. Notice the punishment now given to Eve. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And all the women went, duh. Come on, ladies, duh. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Notice the punishment placed upon Eve. Greater difficulty in childbirth. Doesn't mean there wasn't going to be difficulty or pain in childbirth, but there will be an increase in childbirth. And there's a whole bunch of theological books written on what that means. But just the fact that it's going to be greater difficulty in childbirth. Notice your desire will be for your husband. And not only that, but you'll be dependent upon his leadership. Now you will be submissive and subjective to your husband. And that is the punishment for Eve. But notice the penalty for Adam. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall, shall bring forth to you. And you will have lots of weeds in your, in your front lawn and your back lawn and weeds in your garden. No, he didn't say that, but I just thought I'd add that in there. And you shall... Eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The penalty for Adam was the ground was cursed. You know, they lived in a garden that was everything was provided for them. <laughs> and uh, now he's going to have to, uh, there are no weeds now, now, granted, some of the vegetables we call vegetables, I consider to be weeds, okay? Just for the record. I mean, take celery, for example. Who was the first brave person to ever eat celery? I think I'll take this thing, looks like a weed, and call it celery and sell it to people so they'll think it's good for them. Whatever. Cursed the ground, but he commanded then that Adam would now have to work. It wasn't that Adam had been commanded to work before because when he was placed in the garden, he was commanded to work. And Adam is still going to find pleasure in his work. But now, just in the pleasure, he's going to work by the sweat of his brow. And any of you who've mowed your grass this weekend know that you wipe away a lot of sweat when you're about mowing that grass. But he has condemned Adam and Eve, to die. I made you from dust, and to dust you'll return. For the wages of sin is death. Death was brought about by the sin of one man upon all of humanity. So we, we want to argue for this, this whole thing that we feel like we've lost in the last week and a half with the Supreme Court ruling that we've lost our perfect environment or maybe that we're gradually losing it. But I, I dare to revert you back to Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of the first family. We've not had it since then. 
We were just under this delusion of thinking that because we lived in the United States of America, I believe one of the most blessed countries since the fall of Jerusalem and Israel. God has had his hand on our nation, but I think eventually his hand is going to be removed from our nation, and we're finally going to reap what we've been sowing for quite some time. So how do we engage from here? Five things as we close. Number one, we need to enter into the conflict. Enter the conflict. Because the conflict has already been happening. And whether you're aware of it or not is, is no excuse. We must enter to the conflict because there's an adversary, the devil, who is seeking whom he may devour. He's, he's, he's roaring like a lion and he's, he's flexing his muscles and he's taking territory that he did not previously have and creating legislation that he didn't previously create. And now he's beginning to roar and to reign and to move and to, to occupy and to dominate. But we must recognize and realize that we are the soldiers of the cross and we must represent Christ and we must enter into the battlefield and engage in the conflict. We can't be passive anymore. We need to refuse to compromise individually and corporately as a church. For the pressure is going to be personally for you and your family to seek a compromise in the standards and the precepts and the principles of God because you want to avoid the conflict. But you've got to enter the conflict and realize that compromise is not an option for you as a Christ follower. And we must make the right choices for ourselves personally, for our marriages, and for our families because they are at stake. Reconciling the the completeness of all that God has revealed to us in the scriptures and given to us in the gospel. And navigating carefully our lives and our church through a turbulent and difficult day that is coming for the church in which I believe greater persecution is coming for you, for your family, for your beliefs, and for our church. It's coming. But it's time to engage and to become a part of what God wants to do through you, through your family, and through us. Are you engaged? Don't choose the path of Adam. Complacently, silently sit by and watch the world just go. Enter the conflict. Become a part of the solution. Stand for Christ. And God will honor you. He will honor us, and he will bless us, not just today, but in generations to come. Take up the cross and follow me, he said, and become my disciples. For he, our Savior, who was was persecuted, why should we think it's going to be different for us? We live in America. It's coming. Let's engage. Let's be a part of the solution. Let's pray.
Good morning. I wish everybody were in here. You guys in the foyer need to watch the screen, okay? We're starting it. It's a great day today to start out our service with Braden's baptism. And so it's our joy and delight to celebrate the life that Christ gave him when he placed his faith and trust in Jesus. He's little, but he's, he's a mighty little guy. So don't disconnect or discount that, that mightiness. Small things come in little packages like dynamite, <laughs> right? <laughs> So if uh, you're here to celebrate Braden's baptism today, you're part of his family, would you stand? All family members, would you stand at this time? See him out there, buddy? All right. Thank you for being here today. If uh, you've had him in the nursery or if you've had him in life group or Sunday school or choir, anything like that, would you stand? Keep standing, parents. And yeah, if you had him, okay, you're part of this as well. So thank you for your investment. And if you'd like to honor the Lord today with Brandon and support him in his decision, would you join this family in standing? Let's all stand. All right, Brayden, look, look out there. They're all standing. So let me ask you something. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus and accepted him as your Savior and Lord? Yes. Yes? It's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in his likeness, to walk with Christ in the power of his resurrection. Thank you. Please be seated. All right. And next we have uh, Christian Clark, who comes to profess his faith through baptism. If you are a member of Christian's family, will you please stand so we can acknowledge you? Yeah. Uh, and if you are uh, in Christian's life group or have been a life group leader for him, would you please stand as well so we can see you? And then like we did for Braden, let's just all stand in celebration for Christian today. Christian, let me ask you, have you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. It's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Thank you.